people who are involved with the tools can get so deep into what the tools can do that they lose track of the problems that they're trying to solve. And so ultimately what you're trying to do is, is position that tool in a way that it's helping people make better decisions about how to advance their programs. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Digital health would seem to provide powerful tools to accelerate drug development, but how to convince skittish pharma companies to embrace these emerging technologies? After two decades at Merck, Connecta Health founder Chris Benko thinks he has the answer. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. And I'm David Shaywitz, and today's episode is brought to you by DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genomic and other health data. All right, so Lisa, the first thing, top of mind today, awesome new gig you have. Tell me about it. Thanks, David. Yeah, I'm really excited. I've joined uh, GE Ventures to lead the healthcare venture fund. Yeah, you're like a big mocker there now, right? <laughs> yeah, that's on my business card, actually. <laughs> no, it's really great. I have a terrific team of people to work with, and they've been uh, really welcoming, and it's exciting. You know, it's exciting to have money to invest at a time when I think the market pricing is coming down, right. and the opportunity may be going up. <laughs> what kind of... Um, uh, in a general sense, you don't do bio. It's not a biotech fund, right? right? It, is it sort of care delivery, digital health? Help me understand what you guys. It's do. really broad. I mean, I think it's anything that in in the realms of health IT, health services, um, in non-invasive or very minimally invasive medical devices like imaging. Um, you know, pretty broad. But I think the focus is on improving healthcare delivery, improving cost, you know, aligning incentives, very similar to what I've done in the past. Right. And then is it set up as a strategic fund or is it sort of purely, okay, you know, just trying to make money? It's really a hybrid. I mean, it's sort of make money first because if you can't make investments in profitable companies or pro companies that become profitable, they are not going to be strategically valuable. <laughs> um, but they really, you know, they need to have some strategic um, story about how they might relate to GE either now or someday in the future. Okay. And since GE seems to be involved in so much stuff, I imagine it's a fairly broad remit. Yes, it really is. I've been able to look at all sorts of interesting things, and they have a pretty big uh, portfolio already of very interesting companies, some of which we've had represented on our show, in fact. Absolutely. Well, that's fantastic. So, Thank um, you. yeah, well, we are really excited for you. Um, royal we. <laughs> I am very excited <laughs> for you. No, and everybody else is too. So it's it's great. It's Thank really you. great stuff. So so they're so lucky to have you, and um, uh, it's going to be a great. It's going to be great stuff. All right. So today, um, we are speaking with Chris Benko. Chris, I was fortunate enough to meet you almost a decade ago when I joined the Just Forming Experimental Medicine team at Merck, and you were a leader in HR at Merck Research Labs. What I hadn't appreciated at the time was how long and deep your relationship with Merck was. As I now understand it, you started working at Merck when you were still a fetus. Is that right? <laughs> pretty much, David. Pretty much. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I fortunately managed to save one of my early ID pictures in which I was 19. But uh, I actually started at wow. age 18 as an undergraduate intern uh, in, in some basic technology support roles. How do you wind up at, at Merck? You know, you're sort of going along and you know, I don't know what... what I don't know what kids do nowadays or kids did back then, but, uh, you, you know, how do you say, I want to, and you're not alone. I mean, I mean, um, actually, there's, there's a really distinguished history. You know, Roy Vagelos joined Merck uh, pretty much, you know, at the same age as I understand it. Uh, so, um, you know, there's certainly an illustrious history. But in your case, how did you wind up deciding this is where I'm, this is, this is what I want to do as an 18-year-old? 
You know, it, it's really funny. It, 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 it's really quite accidental. I, I thought of Merck as this, uh, this smelly factory in the town of Danville, Pennsylvania, where I'd gone to high school, um, where, where they had a plant that, that put up some off odors and hadn't really even appreciated that it was one of the, the most admired companies in the world. Actually, my undergraduate freshman and sophomore year college roommate I had worked there. Both of his parents uh, were, were at Merck. And uh, he connected me to the technology group that he'd worked in the prior summer. Um, funny enough, one young woman who I started with, same age as, as me, as, a, as an intern, also lasted about 18 years there before wow. moving on to head clinical operations at another company. So I wasn't alone. And so you started doing sort of uh, like systems IT-ish kind of stuff. But then there were some mentors along the way who sort of uh, coached you in um, and sort of helped your career progress. Could you talk about the role of some of your mentors in the evolution of your career at Merck? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I always had a passion for technology. It wasn't what I studied, but I really enjoyed solving technology problems. Um, but ultimately, you know, I, I came to really appreciate the, the kind of impact a place like Merck has on the world. And so um, I, I wanted to be able to influence that. And I, I really started to appreciate that you know, the most important thing in the company is, is R&D. Uh, and that's true of most biopharmaceutical companies. That's where they create new innovations that matter to patients. And so I wanted to find a way to get closer to that part of the organization um, and, and really add value there. Uh, I was fortunate enough that some of the people I got to work with and support from a technology perspective um, took the view that they'd rather, you know, take somebody who they thought had potential and take a chance on them and shape them. And so um, I've had a number of important mentors like that over the years. And, and as I reflect on jobs, all of the most important jobs I ever took uh, were because somebody placed a bet on me to be able to do something that, you know, wasn't necessarily obvious. And um, there was a head of an organizational development and executive development group, still a very good friend of mine, who um, brought me from the technology organization into his team. And I quickly got the opportunity to get closer to R&D and start to support that part of the organization um, before ultimately uh, moving on to that team. So what was it they saw in you? What was it that people saw in you that allowed them to overlook experience um, and give you a chance? You know, what I've, what I've been able to do is find a way, um, in, and I think in most of those relationships, and that's just one of a couple, where, um, you know, I've, I've not just built a relationship in sort of the social sense, but I've found opportunities uh, to work with the people that I wanted to work with or work with areas of the business uh, and demonstrate that I could deliver something of value. And, you know, then I think within there, it's people look at the quality of thinking, they look at the way you interact, and you give people an opportunity to see the substrate um, that you can bring to the table because so much of the rest of what we do in the business environment is learned on the job anyway. Well, I mean, I remember uh, Chris always had sort of these insane people skills, just like he knew everyone and, and somehow was able to even get very disparate people to work together and to, and to connect. And it really is this sort of neat skill that once you see someone who has it, it it's, uh, it, it, it's quite striking. Um, so you, as, I, as I recall, you wound up in talent management, but then wound up doing a Merck-sponsored MBA at Duke. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. And uh, what did what did you come back from your MBA with? How did that how did that impact the way you were looking at your at both your own career and what Merck was doing? You know, um, interestingly, I actually often dissuade people from from pursuing MBAs as much as I really love my experience at Duke and particularly the the network of of connections that I made there. Um, you know, what, what I will say about business school is I, I think it did two things for me. One is it in, improved the, it's not a, it's not a deeply intellectual endeavor for sure. It's, it's much more about breadth and I think learning how to think about and evaluate a business 
and articulate it, particularly in, in financial terms, start to understand some of the other operational things that just don't come out naturally or in an obvious way in a business environment if you don't, if you don't focus on them academically. And I think that's helped me in subsequent roles. I think also, you know, having a soft undergraduate degree in political science and having come out of corporate functions, I, I believe it probably has added a bit of credibility um, for certain jobs that I've had the opportunity to take. That's always really hard to tell. Um, nobody, nobody necessarily directly comments on that, but I'm sure it, it hasn't hurt um, as I've gone for various opportunities where people, you know, might have otherwise wondered about kind of the, the technical or academic background. Yeah, well, we're intrinsically suspicious of people with poli-sci degrees, right, Lisa? Yeah, right, like me. And I find it hilarious that you say that because I have thought that at times, and I do, in fact, have not just a undergraduate, but a master's in political science. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm always intrigued because I teach over at the business school at Berkeley, you know, a place where I did not personally go. And, um, you know, why folks who come to the business school step away from their careers at a pivotal time? You know, most of the, the students I have have been in healthcare, you know, business and, or, or science in some way for, for five or six years and, and come in, you know, for a two-year degree. And, you know, so I'm curious to see, what is there something tangible you could describe about how it made a difference for you? I know you d just talked, you know, kind of generally about that, but was there a tangible experience you had going back into Merck where you thought, wow, I'm glad I had that MBA because it allowed me to do X, Y, Z differently? You know, th you know, there's not necessarily one moment, but I think that there's a level of acumen. So for example, I had the opportunity to support actually the vast majority of either the due diligence or acquisitions that Merck was involved with through a series of R&D acquisitions, uh, all the way up to leading the people and culture integration of Merck and Sharing Plow. And um, being around the table in, in a due diligence discussion and influencing that, um, and being able to kind of speak the appropriate language as you're talking about evaluating the entire business, that that's, you know, people fake it, I suppose, but uh, I think the MBA gave me the background and the fundamentals that I didn't have to fake it and that I knew what I was talking about. Fake it better. Exactly, David. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, those, those experiences. So it's a $100,000 glossary is what you're saying. Exactly. It was, it was 120000 actually, yes. $120,000 glossary. Like six, six months of classes crammed into two years, right? <laughs> yeah. So then you, one of the most uh, you know, striking things you did at Merck was you, you helped drive this pivotal initiative, which is still really, uh, you know, uh, something that the industry struggles with, this sort of target to 2B uh, initiative. Could you talk both about that uh, in the context of the industry and then what your role was at Merck? Yeah, yeah. So so actually when I was brought over from kind of a, a more of a corporate role where I got to work with R&D, but to be part of the R&D extended leadership was focused around implementing an operating model um, that was looking at, at, at phases target through 2B. And, and there were really two prongs of what they were trying to do. One was to um, build much deeper therapeutic area expertise earlier in the pipeline in a couple of very specific areas. And then the other thing was to um, implement various technologies and capabilities around translational medicine and biomarkers. Um, in, in this case, particularly, it was uh, imaging technologies, molecular profiling, uh, and experimental medicine paradigms, which, David, you were a part of. And, and how to use those approaches to make better decisions about drug development. So how do we build new biomarkers, new models? How do we learn from programs that are success as well as failures? Um, because so much is riding on the investment decisions that are made at that phase. And organizationally, you know, like you're saying, you know, from the talent side of things or from the organizational behavioral side even, what were the key challenges in bringing a novel, I mean, we always hear these novel programs that, you know, organizations are always, okay, here's our new 
strategy. No, no, new week, new strategy. What was your, what was the key implementation challenges that you dealt with as you, as this plan was rolled out to the organization? And what did you learn? Yeah, yeah. So you have the juxtaposition of the people that work on those new capabilities or tools, and then the development teams who are at the heart of a pharma company whose job it is um, to, to advance and study the, the new programs. And, and there, there really is a tension between those things because the people who are involved with the tools can get so deep into what the tools can do that they lose track of the problems that they're trying to solve. And so Ultimately, what you're trying to do is, is position that tool in a way that it's helping people make better decisions about how to advance their programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, what you're doing is you're essentially showing up with something that's going to introduce complexity, slow things down, maybe make it harder for them to advance their program. And let's not kid ourselves. They all want the programs to advance. And in some cases, you're introducing tools that might help you reach a conclusion to kill it faster. Which is the idea of it. I mean, the whole idea of I, I mean, I, I think all people always don't appreciate this. The whole goal of all of this, of experimental medicine was actually to develop paradigms that would allow you to more quickly and confidently kill programs earlier because that's really where you save money in drug development by figuring out what there are so many things that don't work figuring those out more efficiently and getting rid of them uh, you know in a way that with 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 minimal regrets which is always the challenge Um, so you know it it, that's that is a challenge to incentivize it, it, it absolutely is. And it, it takes the right people as well. So, you know, you can't just slam mandates in there that people are going to use these things. Um, and at the same time, you know, you have to get people and train people to think that way and think and operate like shareholders of the company. Um, you know, otherwise what you do have are kind of misaligned motivations and incentives. Um, and so that's, that's a lot to work through. And actually, I still see a lot of parallels to that with what I do today. Yeah, I would think that's a, that's a real, that, that you're the hardest thing to sell against is inertia and, and people's sort of falling in love with their projects and, and worrying about their own jobs if things go bad. Ab- yeah, absolutely. So Chris, so you wound up doing so well that um, you ultimately got promoted to VP at Merck at the, the tender age of 34, which is it is crazy rare at Merck. Um, and uh, I, I would think some would have been overjoyed, but it seems like you felt restless. Can you tell us what happened next? Yeah, you know, it was it was a little bit of a weird thing to find myself at that level of the company. At um, you know, I I'd been working for a long time, but but as you said, I, I was still relatively young, and it wasn't a place I ever expected to get. I was really surprised when I when I got the offer to work for the head of HR, head talent management for the company. Um, you know, I enjoyed the job in the sense that I learned a tremendous amount about how the corporation operates at the highest levels and on a, on a long-term basis. But I'd essentially almost priced myself out of the market, if you will, in terms of moving around the company and going and doing other things. Um, I, I'd always had, a, you know, I think, a, an entrepreneurial itch. I wanted to do things that were more operational. But once you get to that level of the company, a lot of those positions are, are kind of behind you. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really put me in an interesting place of reflection after doing the job for about three years to say, you know, where, where do I go from here? Washed up at 34, huh? Uh, well, you know, I, 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 I wrote it out until about 37. But that was when I, I started reflecting and having the right conversations with mentors inside and outside the company. And I really knew I wanted to go do something far more operational um, and ideally smaller and entrepreneurial. And and I was you know, incredibly fortunate to have the sponsorship and support of some people inside the company to go do what was essentially an entrepreneur in residence role um, with the venture fund, um, which was the kind of incubation support for what I'm doing now at Conexa. So is that the GIC fund, the, the fund that's focused on healthcare IT, or is that the pharma side of the fund? 
Yeah, it, it's the it's the Global Health Innovation Fund, Lisa, uh, and I think you've had some interactions with them. Um, that the, the the pharma fund is really a, kind of a very separate space and actually not quite as mature as the digital health group. Yeah, no, I definitely know those guys uh, quite well. Um, Bill Toronto and I have have been together on many uh, many occasions, uh, particularly through Health XL, um, and you know I really think they have done a great job putting a professionalized corporate venture enterprise together inside of Merck, probably one of the best there is out there. What what did you find in doing that? I, I'm always curious for people that come over from the operational side to the venture side, you know, what what is the, the biggest surprise to you? Yeah, you know, it's yeah, I, I learned so much there. And you know, Bill Bill's I, I you know, not to slight anybody else I worked for, but he's basically the best boss I ever had when I had the opportunity to go over and work with him. Um, it's a very, very different kind of culture and uh, around kind of performance and accountability. Uh, and Bill is the kind of person who definitely gave me enough rope to, to hang myself with. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, they're very performance driven in a way that the rest of the corporation doesn't need to be unless you're at the very, very top of the house. Most people are insulated from that. And so it was funny. I heard David asking you early on about you know, how you operate, Lisa, with, with the GE fund. You know, there is that sense of what is the financial performance metrics that you're delivering? And they, they matter in a very different way. Um, to, to the venture fund. They don't think like or operate like people anywhere else in the pharma business. They're, they're investors. That's yeah. what they're trained to do and how they operate. It's just a completely different feel. Well, one of the big tensions, though, between these two sides is, you know, the venture guys are looking for innovation, stuff on the fringe of what, you know, the core is doing. It's a little, maybe a little different at Merck because they're not a health IT business at their core. But you know the the um, operational organ often rejects the new uh, the new entries. You know when the, when those innovations come over the wall from the venture side. How how did that work at Merck? Was it, was there a connection, or because it was really a health IT fund, it, it didn't need to connect so much, or or how does that go? No, it, it is a bit of an ongoing tension. To be honest with you, um, that that's and it's something you know I still see. They have an observer seat on our board, so we're, we we still talk to those guys quite a bit. Um, it's it's a challenge because they want things that are relevant uh, to Merck's business in some form or fashion, but it's not a health IT company. So um, you know, I, any strategic um, fund is going to be a bit different depending on the on the nature of its parent. But that is a lot of the back and forth that they deal with. They'll see a good investment, and you have to think about how much it'll align to the company's interests today, or how much it'll align to the company's interest in the future. Um, the key is having really good people in the fund who know how to navigate that. And I think they also have worked really intentionally to build the right governance body right. around their investments and to make sure that um, that they get those people aligned with the investment theses and the, the kind of value proposition for the company. That's, that's really, really critical is that wherever you need additional support and decision making, that you've got the right body and that they're kind of educated and oriented in a similar way. It always has seemed to me really tricky to get the corporate, uh, you know, again, within a pharma company, to get the corporate venture uh, venture part right. Obviously, corporate venture has become a huge thing. Um, there's so many emerging between biotechs that are supported, that have, you know, as Bruce Booth has written and others, uh, been supported by, uh, and Lisa's written, you know, been supported by, uh, by corporate ventures. On the other hand, you know, it's sort of weird because it's not only financial, you know, it, it, they're driven by this combination of strategic and financial returns. I mean, there has to be a strategic element to it, uh, and that always seems tricky. And then there's this idea that, oh, if people are invest, you know, that the fund will be able to leverage the strength of the pharmas and all the skills the pharma has, but yet there are all these lines, explicit lines, bet- that prevent actually that, ac- that expertise in many cases from being accessed. H- how have you found that balancing act, or how did you find that balancing act? 
Yeah, no, they're, they're really the lines are actually very, very strict and very serious, um, and, and even the ones that aren't formal, right? So to have a really effective investment group, they, they need to be different than the core business people. They need to operate separately. So um, in truth, you know, at least in my experience, particularly with the Merck Fund, they're, they're not really that involved in brokering very much back and forth to, to the company on, on an ongoing basis. I think that the, the mothership is very helpful in things like due diligence, um, but I think that the ongoing connections um, that that's a lot trickier. And again, some of it being kind of hardwired and regulatory and some of it just being the natural distinctions between those people. So I actually still do wor some work with Merck as a customer, but that's kind of relies a completely on pre-existing knowledge, not on any connection through the venture fund. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting issue. So uh, speaking of sort of your current work, uh, we'd love to hear a little bit more about Conexa. About, we know that you incubated it while you were sort of in this VC, like you're saying, in this EIR-like fashion. So tell us, what, what was your idea when you started Conexa? How does a guy with sort of your operational and sort of HR experience wind up becoming CEO of sort of a, you know, of a very exciting emerging um, digital health and technology company? T uh, tell, tell us what, how it evolved and what you're doing now. Yeah, I'm going to give you a quick what I'm doing now, and then I'll back it up to the beginning. Um, so we're a software company supporting the pharmaceutical industry. Um, our platform and our related services support clinical trials that are incorporating patient data contributing from remote biometric devices and mobile tools. Uh, and, and we use the, the models that we develop and, and, and the tools that we implement in studies to help companies do things like make earlier decisions in the drug development process. And that's an important distinction that you, you, you just sort of made because they're, that it's not, um, it's not supporting um, uh, – they're not supporting, at the moment, as much registrational studies, as I understand it, like, oh, we're trying to register this biomarker, use this biomarker as part of the registration, as trying to use it like we were doing, as you are about to say, I think I cut you off, in experimental medicine to make better early decisions. Yeah, that, that's correct, David. We've supported more than a dozen studies now. Only one of them is pivotal, and it's just starting to enroll. So that's, that's absolutely correct. Um, you know, you asked about where, where it started and how. Um, you know, the, the fund having invested in a lot of different technologies that were producing data, including some companies like, for example, Preventus, which is a wearable ECG that we, we've worked with, for, for instance, they were, they were seeing that there are clearly opportunities, as many have seen with these new real-world data sources in healthcare. Um, my background and interest in technology in the translational space naturally connected to it. I'll be honest, it took a while to um, kind of figure out exactly where to focus and what to bite off first. Uh, and, it, and it took a few pivots, as it often does early startups, to get to exactly where we were. Um, quite frankly, I, I don't think it's possible or, or it's incredibly difficult for a, a technology startup to kind of go straight to pharma-sponsored studies. So the first work that we did were actually in some academic studies um, where, where kind of the level of um, some of the rigor around the data handling and regulatory scrutiny is a little bit different. So those, our initial customer projects were with academic institutions, and that gave us the credibility and the momentum and experience to then look at pharma as a target customer, which is a very logical one given the industry that I know, the relationships that we have, and our ability to create kind of a niche and a unique value proposition um, for that customer base. So can you give us a, a very specific example of how the platforms are used? Because I think there's a lot of companies that are doing things around this area and different, biting off different, different parts of that apple. But, you know, how, how exactly has your product been used in some, in actual, you know, situation? 
Yeah, yeah. So there's two components of the kind of let, let's start with the endpoints of the platform. Um, we, we have an app that's used by patients to contribute data, could be diary data, could be ePro data, um, could be information about whether or not they're complying with study procedures. Uh, and then we also ingest data from what are typically class one or two cleared medical devices, um, like uh, spirometers to record pulmonary function tests, activity tracking devices, the, the kind of clinical equivalents of what people see with the Fitbits or Apple Watches, but not really those kinds of tools. Um, and then some other, other technologies, blood pressure cuffs, scales, wearable ECGs. Um, it, the, using these, these technologies in a clinical study is a complete package. It's not just handing a device to a patient. And we're involved with that whole package. Um, we, we help work through the design considerations, the behavioral issues, compliance informed by software reminders, and, and all the data management. But to put a point on it, so for example, um, in respiratory disease, um, what we are doing is deploying remote pulmonary function tests um, enforcing them along a particular paradigm uh, to allow sponsors to get far more information from their subjects um, than they could have possibly gotten in a normal study design. And so what we can do is by getting pulmonary function tests twice a day with kind of appropriate reminders, with appropriate monitoring through our software, we can in a very short study and in a very small number of people start to understand either the treatment effect of a drug um, or disease progression in a way that would take far more people or much longer if you were using traditional in-clinic measures. So the real focus of this is is the clinical experiment side of things, um, you know, sort of matching between molecule and biology and, and what's going on with the patient and not so much the, you know, the marketability side, not so much the cost side, not, you know, the kind of what happens after the product makes it to market. Yeah, not yet. You know, um, we're getting some interesting queries about working there, about working in phase four studies and things like that. And I think that naturally, as you implement tools early on in the drug development process, they'll follow through to the later stages. So, you know, we, we see that, that as, as something that's interesting on the horizon. I, I think that our approach has been to make sure that we build the credibility and rigor up front. And I think it's going to make a case much, much stronger when we have the opportunity to get there and, and ultimately have to face the, the scrutiny of the regulators and the people who reimburse medicines, um, what we should have kind of a, a really, really solid case of evidence from doing earlier, well-controlled, uh, validated studies. Most of the people in, um, in, in, a lot of people I know sort of from Silicon Valley who approach this space in general, this, they struggle uh, in, some, in many cases being taken seriously by pharma, by understanding how does even a pharma company operate or what are they trying to do? I imagine that that's sort of your, in a sense, your unfair advantage because you deeply understand exactly who it is that you're selling to and exactly what they're trying to do. Um, how did you build up the expertise on the technology side to the level of your sort of expertise on the pharma side? Yeah, so, you know, the, the thing that, that helps me that's not maybe always obvious from my bio, so um, at many points in my career at Merck, I, I was responsible for validated systems. People don't necessarily realize all the systems that have to be validated in, in, a, in a formal world. So, for example, um, tools that deliver and manage training, um, which I had responsibility for both as an IT person and later on when I ran learning and development and talent management, are absolutely critical. You train your investigators, you train your internal people, 
they follow you know very similar rules to other systems the FDA looks at. So I had that in my kind of mindset, and and that compliance piece is a huge huge part of what we do. Now when it comes to the software development and programming, I I, I I've learned a lot from being back in this space. But one of the things that's been incredibly important is building a team around me that have a diverse range of expertise. I, I'll say the first thing is everybody on my team at Connexa has prior startup experience except for me, which is critical. Uh, my chief technology officer uh, has been in senior tech roles in banking and in startups and in financial services. And my head of data science is a computer science guy, undergrad and masters, and was a software engineer before getting his doctorate in biostatistics. So mm. um, I've got people around me that are, are way deep into how you actually build the tools and understand them. But I, I had enough of a mindset around how do you manage compliant validated systems that I was able to contribute that perspective. Is it hard to transition from being, you know, a guy at Merck with ultimate resources to a guy at a startup with, you know, making your own copies? Oh my God, Lisa, I can't even tell you. I mean, I, um, the office, the combined office that my team sits in in New York, we, we need more space now. Um, we, we've got about seven people in New York. That office is about the size of the office I had to myself at Merck. <laughs> um, it's really different. I, I, I remember, um, um, you know, there, there have been a couple of moments that have really illustrated the point of the, the massive differences between being in a big, big farm and a startup. The, the worst was um, when I was still in the EIR role, so I was still on Merck's payroll, but I was, I was funding most of the things I was doing out of my incubation budget. I took, um, I, I, I took the train, a crosstown bus, and the subway to get to a meeting in New York, and then ran into one of my colleagues um, from Merck there and got to take the helicopter home in 15 minutes. <laughs> I bet it was faster. So it's it's a really it's a really different world. I, I you know I, I again I don't um, I, I don't miss it or reflect on it, but I will tell you there was a, a steep learning curve to to having no resources to having to take out the trash and make copies. Uh, and again, I'm so grateful that I'm surrounded by a bunch of people who've all done that before, and they could knock me around when I wasn't getting it. There's also an emphasis, there's sort of at least a lore slash rationalization that sort of scarcity sharpens your mind and makes you sort of work smarter. The flip side is that 15-minute ride is a lot better than a two-hour commute. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but some people say that actually one of the big problems with these large pharma companies is there's a huge amount of sort of, of, of waste and extra layers. And so I'm wondering if there's any if you've actually felt palpably any of the benefit of um, the, you know, uh, of the in sense of the, of the resource scarcity. The culture of poverty. No, let me push it even further, right? So I, um, you know, Merck's fund is used to investing relatively big chunks in, in later stage rounds than, than what I was involved with. And so with that, you know, on my mind, even in, as I was incubating the company, we, we kind of originally contemplated going out and, and doing a fairly large round with multiple investors. When I say fairly large, you know, a typical kind of size A round, we ultimately decided that we were going to go our own way as a revenue funded company with a very modest amount of convertible debt from Merck to kind of help us get through the first couple months of payroll. So, so we, we went down to really, really scarce. Um, that was an evolution. It took me kind of, uh, you know, a little bit of time to get my own head around that and um, to, to, you know, decide to take an enormous personal pay cut as well. But um, being resource scarce has pushed us to be very ambitious in terms of the kind of projects that we go after. And so I think that's been a huge part of what's forced us to innovate and force us to think very carefully about what customer projects we want because we know we need repeat business. So if we're not solving problems for our customers, they're not going to invite us back. So it's been, it's been very, very powerful. And, and when I, my friends in Big Pharma 
ask for advice around these kinds of issues, you know, I think constraining resources is just absolutely one of the most important things you can do. I think, you know, you see some companies that have that very philosophically like Gilead in terms of how they're designed. Exactly who I was thinking of. Yeah, they they definitely are, you know, I remember they're like a tenth the size of Merck, at least at least at one point like recently they, they had the same market cap, not quite anymore. But it's, it's you know, my wife works at Gilead and it is, I mean, they run it, it, it you know, far with far fewer resources and far fewer people, um, and f- it's way more intense, I think, for most people there. But um, uh, than than you know than some other big pharma's. So that 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 really resonates, Chris. It's been um, tremendous. We have to. It's where I know we're reaching the end of our of our time here. Um, we're really grateful for you for joining us. It's so exciting what what, what you're building. Um, it sounds like a really uh, uh, information pack transition. And um, we're so excited to see how the journey continues and where this winds up. Thanks very much to both of you. It's great speaking with you. Great to speak to you too, Chris. Take care. Bye-bye. Chris Benko is founder and CEO of Connexa Health and joined us today from New Jersey, exit 33 of Route 78. <laughs> it's really uh, interesting to, to, to hear about these digital health companies that are trying to change the way clinical discovery is done. I mean, I think there's so much culture change that needs to happen for it to be really successful. I think that it's true. I think it's always really, you know, the, the promise of biomarkers and of being able to inform drug development is, is really exciting. But having it be robust enough, it's so that what, what's, what's the most difficult challenge here is, is, is killing a product, is coming to, is not something that ratifies a decision right, you're going to make right. anyway. But, some, but having where you plan to develop something and then you have a result and say, you know what, we so believe this negative result or, have a, or can summon enough courage or confidence that, 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 we, that we're going to kill something that we otherwise really want to work on. That's such a high bar. It really is a high bar. And speaking of high bars, next we will be excited to uh, interview Pamela Hadfield, co-founder of HelloMD, which is a company focused on medical marijuana. All right, should be an interesting show. Uh, you can follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com as well as on the Timmerman Report. Also, please remember to uh, review and uh, rate us on iTunes. We're grateful to our sponsor, DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonic Studio B in scenic Mill Valley, California. Ciao, Ciao baby. baby.